Good evening, it's good to see you tonight. We uh, are certainly thankful to be together. We're very thankful to our God. He's blessed us with this nice cool weather and wonderful rain. And uh, we're blessed to be here tonight together and to be able to study God's Word. We're going to try to get through the entire chapter of of John 5 tonight. Uh, And and there's 47 verses, so I'm just going to let you know we're not going to take time to really dig in and examine some of the things that may be perhaps more obvious in the chapter, but we'll focus on some of the highlights of the chapter. Uh, The first few verses will go a little bit slow as we do some uh, sort of recapping and also kind of thinking about things we've already looked at to get us back in the right mindset to look at John chapter 5. And so I just want to remind you of some things that we've already talked about in the first four chapters. John's gospel, unlike the uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focuses less on what Jesus did and more on who Jesus is. Now, that's not to say that John doesn't outline some of the things that Jesus did, but there's just not a very detailed narrative about Jesus' life, his birth, things of that nature. It's really more focused on this is who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just a person who lived in Galilee who walked around teaching God's word and was eventually crucified on a cross. There was a lot of debate and argument and discussion between uh, the Gentiles, especially those that were Christians, about who Jesus was. And there was some confusion about that. In John's letter, uh, this gospel helps to identify who Jesus is. So just going back through the first four chapters, John tells us in the first verse of this book that Jesus is the word incarnate, uh, that he is the embodiment of truth. He also tells us that He is God. He is eternal. Jesus is not a created being. He is God. He is life. In fact, He says, and the life was also the light of men. And Jesus later in this book, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, says, I am the light of the world. He is the light. Jesus also is identified as the Son of God by John. And then later in the first chapter, Nathaniel Nathaniel speaks with Jesus, says, you are truly the Son of God, or you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. That's another thing we see about who Jesus is. And then Jesus later identifies himself as the Son of Man, which we'll talk about tonight in our John chapter 5 study. And then also Christ in John 4, 42, as he's there in Samaria, they identified Jesus as being the Christ or, as we often refer to it, the Messiah, which the word Christ just means the anointed one or the chosen one. And also they said, you are the Savior of the world. So this is, this is just the first four chapters. We're getting, a, we're getting a real good picture of who Jesus is, that he is God And he is man, but he's not just man. He is God, and he was chosen by God for a specific purpose to bring life and light into the world, to show us who the Father is, to show us what truth is, to show us the way to life, the way to salvation. That was the purpose of Jesus, and John 5 is going to continue in that theme. So let's just jump right in. John 5, uh, I've got 1 through 4 up here. This is just verse 1. After this was a feast to the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, 
When John wrote this book, he wrote it to Gentiles. And so as he goes through, he identifies several things that the Gentiles wouldn't have known about that the Jews would have. He wouldn't have had to say a feast of the Jews if he was writing to the Jews. He would have said this particular feast. Now, what feast is he talking about? And I'll, I'll just give you, this, this is somewhat speculation, but there's also some evidence that perhaps the feast that was happening here was what we call Pentecost or what they would have called the Feast of Weeks. We actually see that in John chapter 2 and 23 that this is the first time that John talks about Jesus going to Judea. And you remember he performed signs and miracles at the Passover feast. And then in John chapter 5, we've got another feast that Jesus goes to at Jerusalem. And then later in John 7, he identifies that at this time, Jesus is going for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these are all commanded feasts. These were not optional feasts. God wrote to them in Exodus and also in Deuteronomy. And he told them all of the men of Israel must go to Jerusalem to observe these feasts. And so we'll talk about them very briefly. The word Passover, which is Pasach in the, in the Hebrew, literally means to pass over. I mean, it's very obvious, right? Going back to Exodus chapter 12, when this was referring or marking an event in the life of Israel, as they were in Egyptian bondage, God told them, I'm going to bring one last plague. All of the firstborn of Egypt are going to die. And if you will put the blood of the lamb over and down the doorpost of your door, my wrath will pass over you. That's where the idea of Passover. So every year they would commemorate this in a feast known as Passover. And Jesus went down to observe that feast. Now in John chapter 5, Jesus goes back to Judea. And I think because you see the fluidity of these feasts and also him marking to these people in Samaria that in four months will come the harvest, well, that was right around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, also called Sukkah, uh, which means literally a tent or a booth. And so when you think Feast of Tabernacles, don't think tabernacle like temple, but rather a tent. And this one actually was marking or noting the 40 years of Israel wandering through the wilderness, living in tents, not having homes. And so that was another feast. And then the one in the middle, which we're talking about tonight in John chapter 5, was what's called Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And the reason it was called the Feast of Weeks is because it was a week of weeks after the Passover. You say, what do you mean a week of weeks? Okay, when they said the word week, they didn't always mean what we meant. When we say week, we mean Sunday to Sunday. Week just meant seven. And so there were seven groups of seven days, which came out to the 50th day after Passover, seven sevens, the week of weeks, the feast of weeks. And that was actually the same day, if you remember, that Peter preached the gospel, the day that the door of the kingdom was open. To salvation. And so all of these days have great significance. That's where Jesus is. He's down here in Judea again at this time when the Feast of Weeks was happening, 50 days after the Passover feast. So he's gone back from Galilee to Judea to observe this. Why? Because Jesus kept the law. He kept the law perfectly, and he always went back and kept the law. And that's why he ends up in Judea around this time. But while he's there, he's also doing his work. So there was in Jerusalem at this time, by the sheep gate, a pool, which in, called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Let's talk about Bethesda for a moment. The word Bethesda is not just a name. These names have meaning. And so in the Hebrew, the word Beth means house. Okay, think of Bethlehem. That's house of bread. Or Bethel 
which literally means the house of El or the house of God. So this is the house of something. Beth as the the house of goodness, the house of mercy or kindness is what it means, the house of mercy. That's the place where these five porches were. And by five porches, uh, this actually doesn't mean like a, a porch like we think of necessarily, uh, but it means a colonnade or a veranda. So if you know what a veranda is, this is a veranda over here. It's a porch with, with columns. Uh, a colonnade is very similar. It's, it's a porch with a covering and has columns in it. So there's five of these next to this pool that is called the house of kindness. Um, and so these people that were there, they were under these porches, okay? They were under these verandas, and that's where they were laying, laid up. It says, in these, these porches, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whosoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. This is pretty unique, isn't it? A little bit unique. You know, there are actually translations of the Bible that omit verse 4. And that's for reasons we don't really have time to delve into. But I'll just tell you that the, the manuscripts that they translated those Bibles from didn't include verse 4. And so there's a little bit of controversy as whether this should be here. I, I think that it should. It's in the, not only in the Textus Receptus, which are the manuscripts the King James and New King James came from, but it's also in the majority text or the Byzantine text, which is literally the largest collection of manuscripts that were translated into English. It's there. And, and I want to bring this up because uh, uh, I'm not being critical of the TV show. I've actually really enjoyed watching the TV show and talk to Darlis and all of them about how much I cried watching some of it. But, but just so we know what truth and fiction are, uh, if you've watched The Chosen, there's an episode about this particular story. And the way Jesus addresses this is almost like these people are superstitious. There's really no, you're not going to get healed if you get to the water. You know, he, he, they make it out to be some pagan type thing. But I want you to notice what John says, what John writes. John says an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the string of the water was made well. That's kind of hard to get around, isn't it? He's not saying everybody believed that they, if they stayed by the water. No, he says this is what happened. An angel literally came down and stirred the water. Now whether they saw the angel or just saw the water being stirred, we don't know. But what we do know is this. They were there for a reason. They were laying under this and they're all watching the water waiting for it to be stirred and trying to get in there first. So this man that Jesus encounters, that's what he's there for. And this isn't the first time that he had been there at this time. Now, maybe the particular time that it's talking about, the certain time, is always around Pentecost Day. I don't know. It doesn't say that they lay there all year waiting for the water to be stirred. All it says is at a certain time that the angel would come down and stir the water. And when somebody got in, the first one that got in was healed of their disease. How desperate would you have to be? To lay out under a porch with a bunch of other sick people watching water waiting for it to be stirred. That's pretty pathetic, isn't it? So Jesus comes and he engages a person who is doing that very thing. Now a certain man, doesn't tell us his name. A certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years he doesn't say what his infirmity is. He only tells us it's sort of inferred that the man couldn't walk. Right? It's inferred. 
very strongly inferred. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? What kind of question is that? (laughs) Jesus is not asking for his own benefit. He's not curious to know whether or not the man wants to be well. He's engaging him. Yeah, he wants to be well. That's why he's there at Bethesda laying around waiting for the water to be stirred. Notice he doesn't say, yes, I want to be made well. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He has no clue. Jesus just walks up and says, do you want to be made well? And he says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. I want you to think about this man's mindset for a moment. This man has been lame or couldn't walk for 38 years, and the one thing that he knows is if I get in that water first, I will be whole. And when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? He didn't say, well, if you know a doctor that can fix me or if you can heal me. No, he's thinking there's only one way I'm going to be well, and I can't get there. I can't get there. Every time I try to get there, somebody gets in there first. You know what that tells us? He'd been at this pool before, and he tried to get to that water, and every time somebody beat him to it. There are probably a lot of other people there around this pool, and we know from the text that there were people there who were sick, they were blind, they were laying there paralyzed, but you know what? Even a blind man has an advantage over a paralyzed man when you're trying to get to the water first. This man was at a disadvantage. But I'll tell you, what he was thinking about was how special this water was and how important that moment was. What he didn't realize is none of that mattered. None of that mattered. Jesus asked him a question. Do you want to be made well? And he basically says, I can't. Yeah, I want to be made well, but I can't. I can't get to the water, Jesus says. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. I wish I had a lot more details about what was going on through this man's mind when Jesus told him that, but John doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is this. Immediately, the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. That water, if that water was what was healing people, I'll tell you how it was happening, through the power of God. That's how it was happening. The water wasn't what was important. God was what was important. God healed this man in spite of him not being able to get to the pool of Bethesda. That healing happened through God's son. And God's son made him well that day. But there's a catch. It was a Sabbath day. And this caused controversy. And so the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anywhere in the Bible that says it was against the Sabbath day to carry your bed? No. It's against the law to walk. They had all kinds of subsection rules attached to this one very simple rule about the Sabbath. They, they would talk about how many steps you could walk, whether you could light a fire, whether someone could come in your house and light it for you. There was all kinds of things that they had made as subsection rules, and this was one of them. You couldn't carry your bed on the Sabbath day. And so his answer is not, hey, I'll do what I want. He said, look, the person that made me well said to me, take your bed and walk. And they said, well, who is this man? 
that said to you, take up your bed and walk. They're not necessarily even caring about the fact that he's cured. They just want to know, well, who told you that? You know why? Because these men are arrogant. They're arrogant. So this man says, I don't know. The one, the one who was healed did not know who it was. He didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. And when the crowd had gathered around, it says that Jesus withdrew himself, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So Jesus withdraws himself from the man. He has this conversation with these Jews. And then later, Jesus comes back to him. And Jesus engages him again. And he says, see, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. I'll tell you, there's a little bit of a spiritual picture here, isn't there? We have the same type of warnings. That once we come to God and God washes us, once he sanctifies us, once he cleanses us, to live a life of sanctification and holiness. Why? Because Peter says, if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled therein and overcome, the worst is latter than the beginning. It had been better for them not to have known the way of life than have to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Jesus says, all right, you've been made well. Now quit sinning, lest something worse come upon you. Now, there's some that have assumed what Jesus meant was, oh, if you go back to sinning, you're going to have a worse physical ailment. I don't believe that's at all what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus teaches against such ideas later in the book of John in John chapter 9. That that's not the way it works. God doesn't send down physical infirmities upon every person who commits sin. But something worse would have come upon this man than being paralyzed or lame for 38 years if he committed sin. If he lived his life in sin. So Jesus not only heals the man, but calls him to repentance. He calls him to repentance. That's another common theme we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of John. So this man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus that made him well. So they asked him, who told you? Who told you to take up your bed? He said, I don't know. Then he finds Jesus, meets Jesus. He goes back and he says, it was Jesus. That's who did it. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. I wish we had time to go into some things that Jesus said about healing on the Sabbath. We just don't have time to do it. But here's what I do want to think about for a moment. These Jews know this man and know he's paralyzed and know now he's not. They know he's not paralyzed. A miracle has been performed. And they want to kill the man that performed it. Really think about that for a moment. Now, as you're thinking about that, let's go right here. Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making him equal with God. See how they viewed Jesus saying, my father? They said, he's a blasphemer. All right, now, notice, he broke the Sabbath. By doing what? Healing a man. You know, this isn't the only time that these men were confused about such things. Look at John. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there in a minute. There it is. Okay. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. We'll get to John 9 in a minute. 
Verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. You know what Jesus is saying? I don't heal anyone without the Father. Any work I do is the work of the Father. The Father's doing the work that I'm doing. Get that in your head. They want to kill Jesus for healing a man. Who healed him? Who are they accusing of breaking the Sabbath? God. They have this similar encounter in John chapter 9 when Jesus heals a blind man. And they said, this man is performing miracles by the power of the devil. And this blind man who's been healed says, look, we know that God does not hear sinners. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Is that logical? God is the performer of miracles. So why would God empower a man who is living in sin, breaking the Sabbath, doing the things you're accusing him of to perform such miracles? Answer, he wouldn't. And that's what this man is saying. How can you call this man a devil worshiper? How can you possibly say this? Look at what he's doing. Look what God is doing. You really think God is going to do something for a man who's living and committing sin? No. That's Jesus, what Jesus is telling them. I don't do anything of myself. I'm doing the work of my Father. And when the Father works, I'm working. And I'm doing the works of my Father. And He tells me what to do, and I do it. And He shows me what to do, and I do it. I'm doing the work of the Father. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I'll tell you what Jesus is doing. He's drawing a line. He's drawing a line. And I'll tell you this, Jesus drew that line over and over in his ministry to show the exclusivity of having a relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with God without the Son. You can't. And Jesus says a very peculiar thing here. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You know, we got this, uh, sometimes these illustrations and animations of the idea of judgment, and there's God sitting on the throne, and Jesus is like the defense attorney. You know who's on the throne of judgment? The Son. Jesus is doing the judging. You might say, well, I think I've seen in Scripture another place where Jesus said he wasn't going to judge, right? Well, we'll look at that in a moment. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Who's appearing? Jesus appearing. Who's judging? Jesus is judging. 
John 12, 47. Here's what Jesus said. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He said, well, that's very confusing. How can he judge the world and not judge the world? Understand what he's saying. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him. Well, how could that be? Look at verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him, the word that I've spoken. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not going to stand up there and make a judgment. I've already set a standard. That standard will judge you. My word that I have spoken will judge you. Let me ask you a question, friends. How well do you know God's word? How well do you know what it says? Do you study it? Do you examine it? Do you try to understand it? Because I'll tell you, just saying I love Jesus is not going to be enough. Not knowing God's will will be what judges us on the last day. And Jesus says, the words that I have spoken, that will be the judge. Jesus is going to judge according to the standard that he's given us in his word. Going back to John 5, looking now at verse 23, we looked at verse 22, look at verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now remember, they want to kill him because he's made himself equal with God. And here's what Jesus said, everybody who honors the Father should honor the Son the same way. I bet their blood was boiling thinking about what he's saying here. But you know what? This is even prophesied about. Look at Psalms chapter 2. This is a, what we would call a messianic prophecy. That is a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. We know who the king is, don't we? Listen to verse 7. Very obvious. I will declare the decree. <clears throat> the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We know that's about Jesus because the Hebrew writer tells us it is. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6 and 8. Now look at the very last verse of this psalm. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trusts in him. You know what that means, kiss the son? Honor the son. Give obeisance to the son. Trust in the son. All Jesus is doing is reminding them of that. Everyone who honors the Son honors the Father. And whoever doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father. This whole idea of coexist and you can go to heaven without Jesus, I'm going to tell you, that's a bunch of garbage. You can't honor God. You can't please God without honoring the Son. See, that's why Christianity is hated. That's why it's hated, because we believe salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Why do we believe that? Because Jesus said that. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death 
into life. Jesus says, you want to escape the judgment that's coming? Well, you've got to hear my word and believe in me and believe in him who sent me. Most assuredly, verse 25, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment, listen, because he is the Son of Man. We'll get to that verse in just a moment. I want to think about what Jesus is telling them. Not only has God committed judgment to me, not only has God said, all who honor not the Son don't honor the Father, but God has given life to the Son of Man. Not only given him life, but given him so that he would have life in himself. That's a kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? What is Jesus called in this book over and over? The life. What did Jesus say right here in verse 25? One day the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who will hear will live. What's he saying? Who is God? God is existence. God is life. Everything that is living comes from God. God has the power to impart life on everything. And Jesus says, he's given the Son that same power to impart life. And Jesus says, one day I'm going to speak and the dead will live. I am life. Later in this gospel, we see that very thing come to fruition when he says the words, Lazarus, come forth. Why did Lazarus come forth? Because God granted the Son to have life in himself and to give life to whoever he pleased. He's given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. This, to me, is obviously a reference to Jesus' humanity. The Son of Man. Jesus is the perfect person to execute judgment. Why? Well, Paul tells Timothy what Jesus is in 1 Timothy 1, 2, and 15, that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ. You see, he's both. He's man and God. He's the perfect mediator. He's the perfect high priest. He's the perfect judge. Because not only is he perfect, he has went through the same hardships, endured the same things, been tempted in the same way that we are. And God has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus says, do not marvel at this. I think they probably were. <laughs> I mean, to hear the things he was saying, how, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. And I, I don't want you to be like those people that were there, but put yourself in their shoes. What, what else could you do but marvel at the things he was saying? Wait, you're saying you're the son of God? You came from God? You're, you're going to judge all men? They probably thought, this guy's insane. Jesus says, don't marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice. Good and evil. All that are in the graves will hear the voice of Jesus one day. I don't know what he's going to say. Maybe he just says, come. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to say. 
But I know this, when Jesus speaks to the dead, when that hour comes, we're not going to have an option of whether or not we listen. Everyone will submit to his authority and the dead will rise because he has all authority and God has given to him life to be in himself. And every single person will come forth, those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So Jesus continues by defining and connecting his unity with the Father. This connection that his work and the Father's work have. And he says, I can of myself do nothing. And he's not just talking about the miracles, he's also talking about his judgment. Notice what he says. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, he says, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, that might seem a little strange that Jesus said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. As though Jesus is telling them, hey, look, if I was to tell you something about myself, well, don't believe it. That's not at all what he's saying. He's actually referencing a very ironclad principle that they already know about. And this was established in the law of Moses. <clears throat> One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. They did that in every single legal dealing or accusation or even... Um, exoneration of a person under the law. There had to be more than, than, than just one witness in order to establish credibility. That's what Jesus is saying. If I was just to bear witness of myself, okay, don't believe it. But there are others bearing witness of me. And one of those is the Father. The Father's bearing witness, and I know that his witness is true. And then he talks about another witness you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, don't miss that phrase. You have sent to John. The people who were skeptics of Jesus, he said, you have sent to John. For what? To find out what John knew. And he says, and he, John, bore witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man. I don't receive testimony from man. He says, but I say these things that you might be saved. Now, what he's saying is this. I'm not concerned about what men say about me. That's not going to make my testimony true. But you do. In fact, you sent to John to get his testimony. And John gave you testimony. And I'm trying to make this clear so that you'll be saved. In other words, you'll know the truth. John was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. He says, you believe John. You believe John for a while. Well, I've got a greater witness than John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus said, okay, don't believe my words. But there's a greater witness than my words and than John's words. And I'll tell you what it is. It's the work that I'm doing. How could they deny it? How could you look at Jesus 
heal a man who has been lame for 38 years and say, God's against that man. That man's evil. That man's wicked. That man's a sinner. Jesus said, no, the fact that God is working through me proves that what I'm saying is true. I'm true. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So let's think about that for just a moment. The Father was speaking through Jesus. Okay, That's the form of God. The visible manifestation of God. In fact, we see that later in this book in chapter 14 when, when one of the disciples says, Show us the Father. And Jesus says, I've been with you all this time. And you say, show me the Father. I've been showing you the Father this whole time. But he's telling these people, you don't know, you don't see that. You've, never, you've not heard his voice at any time. But you don't even have his word abiding in you. See, these people thought that they had the word abiding in them. They prided themselves in knowing the scriptures. Jesus says, you don't have the word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. What he's saying is, you don't really have the word abiding in you, otherwise, you believe me. And then he tells them this, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. He did not say you have eternal life. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Here's the irony. They put all their confidence in their knowledge and understanding of the Bible. And Jesus says, it speaks of me. We've often said, many of us have often said, the New Testament doesn't make sense without the Old Testament. But the Old Testament doesn't make sense without the New Testament. Because nothing makes sense without Jesus. They put all their stock in their understanding of the Old Testament, but they rejected the very focus of everything God had ever done in dealing with mankind. Really think about that. The one person who could give them life, eternal life, the life that they thought they had, the one person that could give it to them, they rejected. And so Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Whew. That's strong. What's he mean by that? Well, let's read on and we'll, we'll understand what Jesus means when he says, you do not have the love of God in you. He says, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How? Can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? I'll tell you what he's telling them. He's revealing something about their heart. He says, this really, all this stuff you're doing and saying, it's not because you love God. It's not about loving God. You love men. That's who you love. You love men. And you love it when men honor men. And you'll receive somebody who comes in his own name and honor him. But the one who's come from the Father, you won't honor him. And the reason why is because you love men more than you love God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. 
You know, we talk about sometimes, you've probably seen this mic drop thing that people do. That's sort of the mic drop in this conversation. He says, I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge according to the will of the Father. But I'm not going to accuse you to my Father because you already have an accuser. It's Moses who you trust. Moses will accuse you. Here's why. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That must have been very hard for the hearer that day. But I'll tell you, Jesus gave them a lot to chew on. A lot to chew on. That he truly is the Son of God. Did Moses write about Jesus? Yes, he did. And here's what Moses wrote. He wrote exactly what Jesus just told them. This is what Moses said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. We just read that, didn't we? Jesus said, I don't speak of myself. Whatever the Father tells me, I say. Whatever the work he wants me to do, I do it. And then look at verse 19. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name. What did Jesus just tell him? I've come in the name of my Father which sent me, and you didn't receive me. And then he says this, I will require it of him. It gave him a lot to think about. I think it gives us a lot to think about. Do we know the words of Jesus? Do we believe everything he said? Do we follow him and not ourselves? Because friends, I'll tell you, God has not changed. If we seek to please men and we don't honor the Son, kiss the Son. Lest he be angry with thee. I hope the study has been a benefit to you tonight. I hope there's been some things of interest. I hope that you'll really think about the words of Jesus here as he tells us the importance of trusting and being committed to him and following him. Because he, we will all stand before him one day. If you're not a Christian tonight, it's not just about becoming a part of a group. It's not about just having a new name so that you can tell people you're a Christian. I'll tell you what it's about. It's about salvation and it's about eternal life. It's about being part of the kingdom and the family of God. It's about Jesus becoming your Lord and your master. And if you're not a Christian tonight, you need to be because in him is life and there's not life in anyone else. And maybe you're here tonight and you've been rejecting the Son of God. You've been rejecting his word. Well, it's not too late. It's not too late. But I'll tell you, we don't know when too late will be. So if you need to repent tonight, if you need to come and ask for prayers, for forgiveness, for strength, for whatever, come have a seat as we stand and we sing.